Well, good morning, Spanish River. It is good to be here with you this morning. Like many of you, I have this vast array of emotions going on in my heart and mind. Ron was not only a dear friend, a brother, but a mentor for 25 years. And so I come with here this morning with a heart heavy with sadness, but yet filled with joy because Ron is standing between, before the throne room of God with a whole new glorified body, worshiping him. And we get to join him worshiping that same glorious Savior. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, so a few weeks or a month ago, whatever it was, when uh, Pastor David asked me to preach, he said, we're doing a series titled Songs of the Savior. And he goes, pick out a psalm. And I picked out Psalms 8 which is this great psalm of the majesty of God. And then uh, uh, like a week later, I'm driving down my car thinking, no, I want to preach Psalms 118. And I uh, had no reason really why I wanted to make the switch other than that. So I quickly sent out an uh, email at a, at a traffic light not while I was driving. And, um, and so I'm going to do Psalms 18, having no idea. And then Thursday morning when I woke up to my phone being blown up with text messages about Ron passing, I was thinking, man, there is no better text to soak our hearts and minds in than Psalms 118. And here's why, because it's all about the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. And so if you have your Bibles, do you have your smartphones? Let's turn to Psalms 118 while you're... Uh, Looking that up, let me just update you on a few things that's been going on in my family over the last year or so. My family has multiplied significantly. Two of my daughters have gotten married. There's a picture of my middle daughter who got married, and then on the right, my oldest daughter and her husband had our very first grandson, which his name is Camilo, and that's happy grandma and grandpa holding our dear grandson, Camilo. This next picture is me almost dropping my grandson, <laughs> Camilo. And, uh, and then we also moved just, just shy of a year ago to Fort Lauderdale to plant New River Fellowship, building upon the great work that Pastor Mike Veets uh, started. And uh, let me just give you a little bit of context of where we're at. Uh, we meet in the ArtServe building there off Sunrise. The ArtServe building is a working art gallery. And so on one side is the Stonewall Inn Memorial. And if you know anything about that, it is where the gay rights movement started in New York City. And so there's like a memorial, a temple to the LGBTQ plus community meeting in the same building which we're meeting. And then there's a working art gallery, which like just a few weeks uh, of me being at New River Fellowship, we got kicked out of the theater. We normally moved in and got moved into our art gallery and the backdrop to our worship was this uh, carving of a naked woman with actual lingerie strung on her. So that's like our worship context. And then we meet in the theater just on the other side of the building. And uh, back in March, there was this production that they did entitled Jesus... Queen of Heaven, and um, and here's some reviews it got of it. Here, here, look at this. There's a review from the Australian Pride Network, The Gospel According to Jesus. Queen of Heaven is an absolute triumph 
an electrifying burst of joy and love that strikes the heart and enriches the soul. And then the next one, Sydney Morning Herald Pride says, Jesus is a streetwise trans woman in, in this inspiring and provocative show. And so just to give you the glimpse of the kind of darkness that we are bringing the light of the gospel to bear in. And it's because of your generosity, and I want to thank you. And so please hold us up in your prayer. Please pray for us. We have seen 12 salvations in the past 11 months. Uh, God is at work significantly in New River Fellowship. We've more than doubled in attendance. Um, God is at work. The light of the gospel is prevailing in one of the darkest corners of South Florida. And so pray for us. Pray that God would bring us leaders. Pray that God would bring us. We, we need a, a, a woman's leader who will come and lead and disciple uh, our women. Uh, and uh, especially so many of them who have just come to Christ. And so just pray for us on that. All right. And so let's jump into our text this morning. Psalms 118 is, um, is, uh, is, is really uh, um, uh, uh, a text about the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. And as a father and as a grandfather, I'm more convinced than anything else that, that my children and my grandson need to be absolutely convinced of this truth. And as a church planter, I am absolutely convinced that more than anything, my community, my city needs to know the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I mean, it is the most practical and relevant truth to our everyday lives. And so uh, Psalms 118 just kind of drills that into our heart. Psalms 118 is in a grouping of psalms known as the Songs of Moses. It is a psalm that is sung in Israel as a remembrance of God rescuing the people of Israel from 430 years of slavery in Egypt. And so this is a psalm that would traditionally be sung during Passover as people are coming to the temple. Now, I think it's helpful up front that I give you some of the characters of this psalm. The first and foremost character is God. Now, I, I know that seems obvious, but so often we forget that uh, this story is all about God. Psalms 8, 118 is all about God. All of scripture is all about God. He is the central figure in all of history. He's the central character in our story. In fact, he is the very author of our story, and we can rest in that because of his steadfast love for us. And the second character is um, the priest who calls the people to worship God uh, in which this Psalms is so obsessed with. And then the third character is a king who testifies of God's steadfast love. And we'll see how this unfolds in this text as we journey through it. And then the final character in the story is the choir. And as we read this text, you'll find out that the choir is Israel, it is the house of Aaron, it is the people who fear the Lord, it is us that will sing of the, uh, of the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. And so the priest begins this psalm with a response of reading. Look with me at verse one. The, the priest says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love 
endures forever, the choir sings back to the priest. You see, the character of God is altogether good. He demonstrates his character, his goodness, through his steadfast love. Now, I want you to see that God's love for us is unshakable and unfailing because of his goodness, not ours. Like, if his love, if the steadfastness of his love was dependent upon my goodness, my righteousness, then I would be in a world of trouble because I could never keep that covenant with God. But what the priest is saying here is, this, is, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And because he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. I want you to see that God loves us with an unshakable, unfailing love. And it's all centered upon his character, not our character. Now, when you begin to believe this, it melts our hearts and transforms us into something altogether different. In the Hebrew word, there's a special word for the steadfast love of God. I don't know, do we have that slide? It's called Hasid. It's the Hebrew word Hasid. Say that with me, Hasid. Okay, this group right here, A plus, C minus over here. A strong C minus, all right? C minus, all right? I was happy with C minus as in high school. Hasid, Hasid refers to God's covenant faithfulness. And his covenant faithfulness to us is undeterred by our lack of goodness. It's all based upon his goodness. Hasid is, Hasid is the kind of love that never gives up, never lets up, and never lets us go. Amen? He says, and so the priest continues this responsive reading. He says, let Israel say, and the choir responds, his steadfast love endures forever. And the priest says, let the house of Aaron say, and the choir responds, let the steadfast love of the Lord endure forever. And then the priest says, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love love of the Lord endures forever. Now the psalmist begins repeating this astounding truth four times, and then at the end of the psalms, he brings it full circle and restates it again. And I think this psalm does it because it is the most important, relevant truth to our everyday lives. God wants to gently but certainly pound this truth into our hearts. I think most of us believe this truth in our head, but we have trouble believing it in our hearts. I mean, we believe it confessionally. We'll say it out loud but functionally, we struggle there. I mean, we believe that the love of the Lord is steadfast for everybody else, but oftentimes we forget it's for us too, especially in those moments of difficult circumstances, in our darkest days, in our deepest griefs. But this, this psalms, there's this gently pounding this truth into our heads and down deeply into our hearts. Now, the king testifies of God's enduring and steadfast love in four ways. And the first way, if you're taking notes, is his presence. The first way God demonstrates his love for us is through his presence. Look at verse five. 
It says, out of my distress, I call on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fare. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall triumph on those who hate me. Now what the king was saying, he's saying out of my stress, he's literally saying out of a tight place in the original Hebrew. Now in the ancient world, if you could drive your enemy into a ravine, then you could pick them off one by one and none could escape. And this is what the king is feeling. He's literally saying, I'm between a rock and a hard space. I don't see any way out. These circumstances look hopeless. But he's saying, the Lord is by my side. And have you ever been there? Have you ever been in difficult circumstances where like, I, I, I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this. I mean, this looks overwhelming. I mean, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, this is what the king is saying. But yet in those moments, in those darkest times, he's saying, the Lord is on my side. In fact, he repeats it twice. You know, I often find myself in dark circumstances and difficult circumstances that I have to repeat to myself, hey, the Lord is on my side. No, I'm not so sure about that. Let me say it again, right? The Lord is on my side. He is my helper. Who can be against him? And what the king is saying is that a miracle takes place against all odds. He's saying, now how did this happen? The Lord's on his side. It's important to remember that God's steadfast love is manifest by his presence, that he is with us in the darkest moments of life, in those uh, uh, deepest losses. He is with us. And when we leave, live keenly aware of this truth, I believe it produces in us a, a humble confidence, a gospel swagger, if you will. When we live in the keen awareness of God's presence in our lives, we say things like this, like in verse seven, God is on my side. I will not cower in the face of my enemies. I will stare them down. How? Because God is my helper. He is my sustainer. He is with me. My enemies hate for me, cannot overwhelm God's love for me. It's a gospel swagger. We're humble because we know we are weak and we are at the end of ourselves, but confident because God is by my side. Now, I want you to see something important about this text. When the psalmist is writing that he is speaking, he is speaking in the past. He says in verse five, out of my distress, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. Now, here's why I point this out. Because sometimes when you are in the middle of distress, you may not feel God's presence with you. Uh, one of the great rewards of walking with Christ for a long, long time is that you begin to have a track record of God's faithfulness, God's presence in your life. And you can look back and see time and time again, like that was a difficult season of life. And you can look back and you say, but God was there. He was holding me up with his right hand. And so over a lifetime of walking with Jesus, 
You build this faith that God's presence will always be with you. He will always be your side. But if you have not been walking with Jesus for a while, then you need somebody else that has. And so when you're struggling, when you're in the middle of the darkness, when you're between a rock and a hard spot, you need someone to go to to remind you that God is by your side. God is by your side. I know that because he's been with my side my entire life and his covenant faithfulness to us is that his steadfast love endures even the most difficult of circumstances that you could face. You'll know who that was for me. It was Ron Tobias. It was in the early days of church planting. He was my coach like 20 years ago when we first planted our church in Orlando and I'd call him and think, man, this is all crashing and burning. Like, I don't think anybody's gonna come. We're gonna die. This church is over. And he, was just, he would just remind you, hey, God's with you. God's with you. He's never gonna let you go. He's never gonna let you down. His love is steadfast and endures forever. A few weeks ago, I sat in Ron's uh, hospital room and um, just before they took him to ICU and eventually to hospice. And we were talking and I could tell he was in pain. I could tell he wasn't comfortable, but he didn't really want to talk about that. He wanted to talk about how he was sharing the gospel with the hospital staff. That's really what consumed him. I mean, it was evident that pain was consuming him, but there is something greater than pain that was consuming him, and that was a love for Jesus. That was an absolute love for Jesus. And as our time ended, he goes, you know, Chan, I, I'm ready to see Jesus face to face. I'm ready. I mean, and he said that with such a confidence. He said that with, without regret. And it's like my very last conversation with him was a conversation reminding me, even in the darkest of days, like he's walking in the valleys of the shadow of death. And he feared no evil. Why? Because God was by his side. God was by his side. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I love to ask my wife this question, has God ever failed us? Like difficult seasons, when our kids were going through difficult seasons, when our marriage was going through difficult seasons, when we had difficult finances. I'd ask my, my wife all the time, has God ever not been faithful to us? And I love it because she would emphatically say, no, he has always been faithful to us. God's presence, he will always be by your side. Now, secondly, he demonstrates his steadfast love for us and his protection. The king testifies to how God demonstrates this. At verse eight, it says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord to trust in princes. I often think the default mode of our hearts is to take refuge in anything and everything but God. I mean, we put our hope and trust in politicians or employers, but the king here who's writing this, he has more control than any of us. And yet he is saying, don't find your hope and security in men, but in the Lord. And because the king finds his refuge and protection, does not find his refuge and protection in created things, but in 
his creator, he can say things like this in verse 10, all the nations surround me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surround me. They surround me on every side and in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surround me like bees and they went like a fire among the thorns and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now, the imagery here is vivid that the psalmist gives us. He feels like he's surrounded by bees that are like a wildfire of burning thorns. Like a modern imagery of that, maybe a soldier in a firefight with bullets zooming around his head. And yet that soldier is saying, Man, I don't care if their enemies surround them. I will cut, I will have victory because the Lord is by my side. In the name of the Lord, who will by my side. And so the king says in verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord has helped me. Like if you're falling in battle, it means that you're wounded or you are dead. But for the king, he's saying, but, and that's a big but, the Lord has helped me. When you are about ready to fall in the battlefield, you're either wounded or you're killed, and your body is about ready to hit the ground. I mean, that's as intense as it gets. But victory is his because the Lord is by his side. Now, here's what I want you to hear in these verses. Let, let me just sum it up as clearly as I possibly can. Like, God demonstrates his love to you through his protection. And so hear this, God got you. God got you. Now I know that's not good grammar, but that's good gospel. All right, uh, yes. All you teachers out there are twitching, you know? <laughs> but you'll never forget this truth that God demonstrates his steadfast love to you, that he is protecting you, even though your enemy surrounding. God got you. Some of you are here this morning, you are parents and you have children who are running as fast as they can away from God. And I want you to give you, I want to give you hope because of the covenant faithfulness of God that's not only given to us, but to our children. God got your children. God got them. Now, God demonstrates his steadfast love for us through his power. Look at verse 14. The king declares, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And the priest proclaims in verse 15, glad songs of salvation are the tents of the righteous. And then the choir responds, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And then the king declares in verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. You know what the king is saying? It's not even death itself has the power to destroy me. That God has the power over life and death. And even though we'll face death like our brother Ron has, that death doesn't have its final word. God does that he resurrects us from the dead and gives us eternal life. Now that's power. With all, with all the biological technologies and scientific technologies and the best scientists in the world that we have, they don't have the power to resurrect people from the dead. 
Only God alone holds that. And that is the God who holds you in his hand because he has that power. Now, Psalms four, uh, verse 14 is a direct quotation of the song of Moses in Exodus 15. You know, the song that the children of Israel sung as they were delivered. They, they left Egypt 430 years of slavery. Pharaoh regrets that he lets a huge economic force go. And so the children of Israel are up against the Red Sea that great army of Pharaoh is bearing down on them. They can see the dust of the horses and the chariots coming down on them. And they're literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. And because the God who loves them is omnipotent, has all power over the greatest armies in the world and even the waters. He separates the waters and they escape through it. And as Pharaoh's armies and chariots rushes in, the waters run back, he destroys the army because God is all powerful. And so they sing this song of deliverance. Now here's the fourth way, and this is where we're gonna land this morning. The fourth way that God demonstrates his steadfast love to us is through the person of Jesus Christ. The king commands in verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Then the priest replies in verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteousness shall enter through it. Now he's standing at the temple gate saying, the only way you can be righteous is through a sacrifice. We'll see this more clearly in a moment. And in the light of this truth, the king responds directly to God for the very first time in the psalm. He says to God, I thank you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day of salvation. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us, give us victory. Now, in response to people's prayer, the priest declares, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, there's, only, there's one who's coming whose sacrifice will ultimately save us. And the choir responds again to this priestly declaration. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. In the darkness, his light shines upon us. Now, finally, the priest declares to the people to prepare their sacrifices, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horn of the altar. And so the people make their sacrifices knowing that their salvation comes through a sacrifice. This is all pointing to an ultimate sacrifice. This song is song, sung during Passover, but it is destined to be per, more perfectly fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Now, the New Testament quotes or alludes to Psalms 118 23 times, all pointing to Jesus. Let me give you two quick examples. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Hold your Bible, a finger in Psalms 118. Turn to Matthew 21. In verse 9 and 10, the, um, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. In verse 21, he's looking down over Jerusalem and he tells the disciples, hey, go find me a donkey. I'm gonna ride into the city knowing that he is riding to his death on the cross. And so in verse nine, as he rides into Jerusalem, 
the crowds went before him and they followed him and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing Psalms 118, Hosanna in the highest, which means save us. They're singing Psalms 118. And when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Now, the answer to that question is found if you fast forward to verse 42. Jesus' authority is being challenged. He's sharing two two, uh, parables. And then in verse 42, he quotes Psalms 118, 22. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? He's looking at these Pharisees and they're going, are you not familiar with Psalms 18? He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in his eyes. You see, Jesus is the real king. Jesus is the king that God's people have been singing about since Psalms 118 for hundreds and hundreds of years. He is our king. The Pharisees and the people rejected him and killed him, but he did not stay in the grave. He overcame sin and death for us so that we could be rescued and saved. He is the true cornerstone that we can build our lives on and we can know that he will be present, that he is our protector and that he is powerful to rescue us and save us. The apostle Peter, 1 Peter 2.6, quotes Psalms 118 saying, for it is in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Like when you put your whole heart and your whole trust in Jesus as the cornerstone, you can build his, your life upon him and be secure. And so how are we to respond? How are we to respond? Like, I, I, I don't know how you felt when I described the production of Jesus, Queen of Heaven. I don't know how you felt, but when I read it, man, there was a mix of emotions that went through my heart. But here's what I want you to see about that. All of us make something or someone our king. We all look to something or someone to give us the security of presence or to find our protection or to find something that has the power to rescue us. And the default mode of every single one of our hearts is to look to something created to be our king. And every time we do that, we create this horribly distorted king because it can never be the true king. There is only one true king, and that is Jesus. And it's because of what he did for us on the cross and his goodness that we can sing his steadfast love endures forever. And so here's our only response, the last two verses, verse 28. You are my God. Have you ever experienced God as your God? Because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we can say he is my God. He is present with me. He is my protector. He is powerful enough to save me. And then we can end like this. In verse 29, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And the choir, God's people, sings, For his steadfast love endures forever. Now, I want you to hold that verse up there on the screen. Here's how we're going to end. I want you to stand with me this morning. And I'm going to, I'm going to say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And I want you to say with incredible confidence of God's word 
and because of what Christ did for us on the cross, seeing for his steadfast love endures forever. All right, you ready for that? Okay. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Oh, it sounds like you believe it, not just in your head, but in your heart. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Amen.